Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo, I'm from the events and lectures team. I'm delighted to welcome you here for tonight's event, Jazz Abstractions with Evan Parker, which is organised in partnership with EFG London Jazz Festival. I'm sure most of you are aware that Evan Parker is one of the world's most admired and influential saxophone improvisers who has been described as the greatest living exponent of free improvisation. Um, (laughs) In a career um, of over 50 years, he's transformed the language and techniques of the saxophone and has collaborated and performed worldwide um, with free jazz ensembles. Um, We're very privileged to have Evan Parker here this evening um, for this concert, which is part of the Royal Academy's um, programme of events around our Abstract Expressionism exhibition. Jazz is often associated with Abstract Expressionism, and we thought that we would examine that idea more closely and take advantage of having Evan Parker here. So after the concert, um, Evan will be in conversation with artist and musician David Ryan, who will be looking um, at the connections between free improvisation in jazz and um, the abstract expressionism movement. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage Evan Parker. Thank you.
Seven for incredible performance there. So jazz abstractions were here at an event that's part of the London Jazz Festival. It's also connected with a, a very significant exhibition of um, abstract expressionist paintings. Um, we have a great exponent of free improvisation here, so it's my impossible task to try and think across those areas. Um, I wanted to start, Evan, it's something that you alluded to in the interview that you published in the RA magazine. I think the starting point of that was the, almost the kind of, we might call them almost like a, the packaging of, of abstract expressionism and jazz. I think within, within popular culture, jazz almost became a soundtrack for, for abstract expressionism. I think you, you were slightly skeptical, I think, there, about the, the connection. And I wondered if, I know that you went to the States, and we're talking about a kind of generation on from that relationship between abstract expressionism and jazz, but you went to the States in, I think, uh, 62 and 63. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wondered, really, what you encountered there, and, and, and did you find any, any interrelationship in this way? between the sort of visual art that you encountered and, the, and maybe your expectations of the jazz that you wanted to hear then? In 1962, I was able to fly to New York because my father had worked so long for British Overseas Airways Corporation that I could fly for just for seven and sixpence airport tax. Uh, there are many, many lit I could talk for an hour about <laughs> that experience, but the, I, I think the, the thing that really relates here is that um, I thought I'd arranged a place to stay 
it was very casual. I realize at the time now I was 18 or something, yeah, 18 years old, and uh, I knocked, knocked on the door of an address in Greenwich Village and said, um, hello, I'm Evan Parker. I'm a friend of, as it happens, Oliver Cotton, the now famous playwright and actor. But uh, he'd said, no, you can go and stay with, she's fine, she'll, she'll be great. And no, the door was not answered by Miss, no. No, she's gone to Europe for the summer. Uh, we are subletting. And I le left a decent moment for them to offer to have me sleep on the floor. No, off no offer came, came. So this is turning into a long story. Um, Okay, so I said, oh, do you have any idea where I could um, stay quite cheaply? And they said, the YMCA on uh, 38th Street, or whatever it was, up by the Empire State Building. So I went up there, and when I was uh, checking in, there was a, a, a guy from Holland uh, who I should have stayed in touch with. I wish I could tell you his name. I'm sure he's now a distinguished uh, art historian or something in Holland. But uh, then he was an 18-year-old like me with some, some way of wangling a trip to New York. And uh, he was there for the art, and I was there for the music. So we, we found that if we shared a room, we could also say, save money. And so we agreed to do that, and then the program was, was laid out. Uh, he took me to all the art shows in the afternoons, and I took him to all the, the so, uh, jazz clubs in the evening. Mutual education. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> and how, how did I let a, a friendship like that just evaporate when I got back on the plane home? Crazy. Youth. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, what, what, did, and what, did you, what did you hear? What were the sounds that you were... I mean, what did you, what, what did you want to hear? What did you, uh, what did you hear? As was the two different... If I'd been a year earlier, I could have heard Coltrane at the Village Vanguard. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. I mean, I did the next best thing, which was to hear uh, the quintet with Eric Dolphy in, in Walthamstow, 1961, a week after the Village Vanguard, November. So maybe by saying I could have seen Dolphy at the Village Vanguard, I'm, I'm skipping. I'd have had to stay there for about four months. So that wasn't really ever. It's a, a conceit, excuse me. But um, I did hear Cecil Taylor with the, the trio with Jimmy Lyons and Sonny Murray mm -hmm. in a place where the, the audience was quite a lot smaller than this, I must say. Maybe five or six people. And uh, yeah. I didn't believe that the great Cecil Taylor would play in a dump like that. <laughs> Since then I've played in dumps like that myself. <laughs> So I refused to pay the entrance until I saw the great man arrive. And then the, 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 the guy selling drinks came over and said, there he is now, pay you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because I think he paid and got one drink, the first drink was, yeah, yeah okay. So that was amazing. And then uh, we uh, just hung around afterwards and had a long conversation with Cecil and, uh, and uh, Sonny Murray. Yeah. Jimmy Lyons got, got his overcoat on and uh, or, or his, I think it was a gabardine and very very suave and he he got off quite quickly. But yeah. but uh, while you, anybody that knows either Cecil Taylor or Sonny Murray knows that they are not averse to conversation. <laughs> so we talked for hours with them yeah. and th they were talking about coming to Europe for the first time and 
That was like the, would have been the June or July of the year they played at the Café Montmartre in, in, in September. So that was probably the high point. Yeah. But I heard Steve Lacey with the School Days Band, mm-hmm. with Roswell Rudd, and Dennis Charles, I'm not sure which bass player it was. The, that band was famous for uh, working its way through 29 bass players in the course of its life. <laughs> Uh, oh, there's an, an anecdote about that too, because um, at the, the end of the first set, Steve Lacey made an announcement. He said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and there were, there were probably enough people to justify him saying ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I'd like to remind you that the band plays uh, requests. Then a, then a decent pause. Any tune by Thelonious Monk. <laughs> so, so on the way... As he came past to go back for the second set, I said, Mr. Lacey, would you play four in one? It was the hardest one I could think of. I said, we can play that. And they did. They could and they did. It was wonderful. Yeah. What, about, what about the visual art? Evan, visual art, well, you know, I can't remember exactly what we saw together, but, but we, <laughs> I, I came to know the work of all the people that are here yeah. in such a way that I think I could recognize a Gottlieb or a, a, a Rothko or a, a Klein or, you know, yeah. I came to know yeah. their signature as it were, yeah. a Sam Francis even, yeah. that's pushing the bounce. <laughs> so I must have seen those, but the, the year after when I went back in 63, I saw a, a group show at the Museum of Modern Art, which had uh, some people that it was already on the cusp of moving towards op, some art yeah. op. There was uh, Richard Anusevitz. I don't yeah. know if anybody knows his work. And um, uh, Ad Reinhardt, who's here. Which, yeah, yeah. I mean, quite how Ad Reinhardt fits into the story of abstract expressionism. It's sort of, I think it's a very flexible term, right? Yeah. Like, all, like free, well, the, the, like free a, the, improvisation, like the, any of these yeah. things. There's a nice story about that. What can I think, you say? I think Ad, Ad Reinhardt always, you know, he was always kind of pulling the abstract expressionist's legs, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever the term would be. And um, Irving Sandler, who was the great archivist of, of the abstract expressionist, said that, um, you know, he, he, he said to Ad Reinhardt, he says, you know, if you hate these guys so much, why are you hanging around with them? And Ad Reinhardt said, no, well, it's like the story of Little Johnny. And, and Irving Sendler said, Little Johnny? And, and, and Ad Reinhardt said, you know, it's, it's a class in primary school, and the school teacher says, hands up, who wants to go to heaven? Everybody puts their hands up apart from Little Johnny. He says, Little Johnny, you don't want to go to heaven? And Little Johnny says, uh, yes, miss, but not with them guys. <laughs> So I think <laughs> that's, uh, that's how Ad Reinhardt you know, saw his relationship to the abstract expressionists, I think. But, um, but Reinhardt's interesting, isn't he, I think, because we were talking a little bit earlier on about this, about the, the idea of duration yeah. in painting. Well, I guess the, the best musical equivalent to that would be uh, Lamont Young's... Uh, yeah. What's it called? For a long time or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, B, the BNF the, sharp piece. Yeah, it's, yeah. Com- uh, what's his name? Composition number six. It, something like <laughs> that. I just made that up. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's something like that. And, uh, but I was wondering about, I mean, your technique and repetitive patterns, was that something you were interested in, in terms of 
Lamont Young or? Well, you Is know, I, I, uh, the late Michael Gerson played played me because um, Lamont was was very careful about recordings. He didn't let anybody no, no. record anything right. for years and years and years. Yeah. And so, in the period where Michael Gerson seemed to get be able to get you anything, so I asked him what what did um, what was the Beatles record that uh, that American producer messed up. Uh, ooh. Richard, what's it called? Let it be. Let it be. Oh, I said. Yeah. Anyway, I could hear let it let it be before. What's his name? I forgot. Phil Spector. Before Phil Spector. <laughs> yeah, before Spectre, Phil Spector okay. got his hands on it. Okay. And Michael said, "Yeah, I can get that for oh, you." All right. Okay. And uh, but he also had the masses of Lamont Young. Yeah. And uh, uh, playing the saxophone. The sopranino. The sopranino. Yeah. yeah. He famously played first chair in the band, Los Angeles big band school, high school band that Eric Dolphy played second alto in. <laughs> so anyway. According to according Lamont. According to Lamont, <laughs> who is a great self-mythographer, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, but he actually, Michael always said, well, if, you know, check it out, you know. Yeah, he's doing something, and of course he was doing something. He was doing a lot of the things that I'm yeah, doing, yeah. but he couldn't circular breathe, so it never, you know, he never hooked yeah. the things up. Yeah. So the whole thing about these patterns, the slightly is, broken, and when they're broken, yeah, everything's lost. You have to start again. Yeah, but yeah. so when I learned to circular breathe, I could loop those things, and it's actually based on different rhythms in the left and right hand. Yeah, loosely yeah. speaking. Yeah. So, uh, if Lamont Young had got circular breathing together, people wouldn't talk about me as a great anything except a great Lamont Young imitator. Yeah, but he didn't keep it up, did he? The saxophone, I think he started... The, the saxo- uh, he got interested in um, tuning systems yeah, and, the, electronic. yeah, yeah, and electronics. Yeah. I had a, 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 a quote, actually, that I wanted to read. It's quite... A, a famous quote uh, or passage, rather, from uh, Maya Shapiro. And I thought this is an interesting quote because it, it seems to get to the heart of what a lot of abstract expressionist painting was, was trying to do. But it's also a quote that makes me think of improvisation and music in some way. Uh, this is Maya Shapiro, who's a, a great art historian of, of the period, writing in 1957, I think. He talks about the consciousness of the personal and and spontaneous in the new painting and sculpture stimulates the artist to invent devices of handling, processing, surfacing, which confer to the utmost degree the aspect of the freely made. Hence the importance of the mark, the stroke, the brush, the drip, the quality of the substance of the paint itself, and the surface of the canvas as a texture and a field of operation. All signs of the artist's active presence. The work of art is an ordered world of its own kind in which we are aware at every point of its becoming. I think that's a really interesting quote, actually, because you know, he's talking about this idea of a field of operation. It's, it's, it's durational. The idea of the work of art is, is an event that's becoming. It's in time. It's finding its form. It's not, it's not a predetermined form. And also this idea of inventing 
processes, ways of handling that become a kind of, let's say, signature events that, yeah. that an artist invests in. And I, you know, I was thinking of this in terms of extended technique, and you might say circular breathing, or you might say multiphonics, mm. in, 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 in terms of um, the way free improvisers have developed, with also a kind of real concern with color, I think, as well, thinking in terms of, 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 of color as a kind of difference. Does that chime in any way with... Uh... Well, I don't have that synesthesia, if that's the word. <laughs> Yeah, I don't but, really mean it like that. I mean, I think it's more a sense of the the the, the timbre of the material in one sense. Yeah, and of course. How you kind of can, yeah, of, you know. Of course, you can make those kind of comparisons. Quite, quite what they elucidate mm. beyond a skill with words. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, you you can you can read. I have no skill with words. So <laughs> he does. <that. laughs> you were quoting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I meant him, of course. Yeah, yeah. When you, uh, the key difference, and we, we talked, we discussed some of these points before, yeah. so we're a little bit rehearsed. And for me, the the, the key uh, difference is that the the process is the music, especially in the case mm. of uh, of openly improvised music, which can go anywhere in the course of performance. Is also, mm -hmm. to a certain extent, true of. It, interpretation of, of, of notated music, yeah. but especially in the case of freely improvised music, mm. then the process is the work. Mm. Uh, to to mm. look at a Jackson Pollock analytically and to work out which layers of drips and splashes were, what's the sequence? Obviously, you can read a kind of tempor temporality yeah. back but the temporality is not there. It's been, mm. it's been mm. frozen yeah. in a final form in, in the piece. And that, that is a big distinction. Yeah. Although the attitudes of uh, artists that are involved in that kind of process and musicians who are involved in the kind of things, yeah. kind of approaches that interest me, are very, they have mm. a lot in common. Mm. But the, fi the final work is differently achieved. Mm. I mean, I was also thinking about, you know, within free improvisation, leaving behind the sort of template of harmonic structure. I remember, I think, reading something of Ferro Sanders saying mm. how, you know, it was in the 60s, I think, that he'd written this, where he said, you know, he'd left the changes behind. And he, he said, you know, I'm trying to figure out a, a way of almost having equivalence to scales, but in multiphonics, you know, that he wanted to, to work on this, he was saying, that's what he was intending to do. So I, th I think, in a way, that's why I was thinking across, in a way, you know, that this very, very specific approach to, to dealing with the material of the instrument, you know, yeah. and how, how that becomes more intense, maybe, when you've left behind, you know, maybe some of the, some of the predetermined structures that are inherited structures in one sense, you know. So you're you're trying to you're trying to develop from the materials themselves in a way, you know. Extended technique, yeah. yeah. It's it's looking for things that the guy that built your instrument didn't really have in, in <laughs> didn't mind. want you to ever to do. Yeah. <laughs> and some some of which work better than others. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, there's there, there's a famous sort of manual by a sax, French saxophone player called Daniel Kinsey called uh, 
les, les sons multiples pour saxophone. Yeah. Very well researched. It works perfectly well as long as you're Daniel Kinsey playing Daniel Kinsey's right. saxophone. With Daniel, although he claims that it works on any factory rec regulated Selma saxophone. Well, that, that was the same of the, the, the notorious, I think it was uh, Bartolozzi. Bartolozzi. My, no, my man, yeah, he pre predated uh, um, Kinsey by 20 years, yeah, I think. Yeah. And but he didn't the, write for the saxophone. No, no. It was, but it was generally for woodwind. Wasn't it? it was called New Sounds for Woodwind. And this was a book that was. <laughs> Really influenced by, I think, electronic music, wasn't it? He, he was interested in the idea of the expansion of sound in early electronic music, and that, in a way, you could develop these almost like concrete sounds for the instrument. But it doesn't work, apparently, a lot of it. I mean, I've tried some of it as well. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say that I've stolen everything I could steal from, <laughs> from that book and never really looked into Bartolozzi's own music. It was the, yeah. the original edition had like a seven-inch... Uh, EP of the, the various solos for the various instruments, which was flute, clarinet, yeah, that's right, bassoon, yeah. oboe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so solo pieces for each, and then a short ensemble pieces piece for the yeah. quartet. Yeah. And uh, it can't have been so striking that that <laughs> it took me away from the yeah. the, the, the material the, the in the, the book itself. Yeah. yeah. Which was yeah. all about uh, basically finding out what, well, we know it can do that, what else can it do? Mm. Which became a preoccupation, I think, for post, uh, post Weber and post, yeah. post uh, Schoenberg, that those guys were not that interested in what else can it do, but yeah. uh, Stockhausen was Stockhausen and Boulez was and so on. Yeah, yeah, more and more and yeah. more. So. But then you, you, you arrive at. Uh, new complexity or whatever they call it and the whole the whole question is um uh is this playable yeah and i think brian funny how the the elite one of the leading composers in that field has said well i'm happy if i get 60 yeah that's right yeah and they are really 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 complex yeah. it's not just complex it's really complex yeah it's like and i don't know how people can deal with it really, yeah, really, like really. Even when my eyesight was better, I yeah, couldn't make sense of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's extremely difficult. There was the bass clarinetist Harry Sparney, wasn't it? There was that story of him, apparently, uh, Brian Fernier had written a piece for um, Harry Sparney, who was a virtuoso bass clarinetist. And he was in Holland, of course, but um, uh, Sparney was sending uh, Fernie how cassettes of his progress, you know. So you say, right, I've got 20%. There it is. And Fernie would listen, and then, you know, I've got 40%, I've got 60%. And he got up to sort of 90%. I think Fernie said, I preferred 60%. You know? <laughs> I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a very well, strange... Something about uh, the Freeman etudes, the cage solo yeah, violin right. pieces, also... You know, no regard for playability at no, all. No. Just no. what are the limits of notata yeah. no, notation rather than? Yeah. But Arditi took on the challenge. Right, yeah. I, I don't know what, what percentage he's up to now, but I, I, well, you know, it's way, way more than sixty. I think, <laughs> I think you're right. I think yeah. it was ninety yeah. percent. Well, is that the famous story of Schoenberg, wasn't it? Where I think uh, he, he, the violin concerto. Was was I can't remember who the violinist was, and and he said to Schoenberg, "You you need a, a violinist with six fingers." And Schoenberg said, "Yeah, I'll wait." <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know whether he meant the, the you know, evolution was going to provide him with a violinist or, or what, but, <laughs> but or things get playable with time. I think was his, it was his, the basic gist. This makes me think a little bit about uh, Coltrane and uh, the notation of Coltrane's yeah, solos, yeah, yeah, which yeah, became yeah, yeah. Uh, for Andrew White became like a, a total obsession. This guy played bass bass guitar in the fifth dimension or something. No. That's impossible. <laughs> anyway, he's a great, great saxophone player. I think he played with Alvin Jones for a, right. for a while. Fantastic, phenomenal t saxophone technique, but made a lot of money playing in a uh, soul band or something, oh, right, okay. and uh, or a funk band, probably more yeah. more likely. And uh, he he notated hundreds, hundreds of Coltrane solos. But the first person to do it was a, a woman classical piano player called Zita Cano. And there's the famous story that she took a transcription of Coltrane to Coltrane. So right. Do you know what this is? Yeah, Do you could, know what this is? He couldn't read it. <laughs> it no, joke. no, no, his, his answer was, was typically brilliant. He said, I, I know what it is, but don't ask me to play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think... One thing I was also thinking about was this idea of preparing for, let's say, a performance like, you, like you've done tonight. Um, I know it's, a, it, it, it's a, a physical, perhaps, concentration as well, you know, in a way. I was thinking of making parallels with visual art again, somebody like Klein, Franz Klein, who would fill telephone directories full of kind of studies and sketches and... And, and this, they're, not, they're not studies, they're not, they're not really kind of templates for the paintings, but they're just kind of... Did you say they were like limbering up? Limbering up, yeah, 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 yeah. Limbering up, yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, and I just wondered, is there any process like that for you, where, where, where you're... The problem is that, that I'm pushing the limits of the embouchure yeah. in performance. If I, if I use, right. the more of it I use up in warming up, yeah. The less there is for the so it's a very delicate balance yeah. actually. So how do you deal with that then? How do you what what kind of what what I does have, I have sort of uh, undemanding practice? Well, not undemanding, but uh, yeah, yeah. their maintenance is basically maintenance. It's not right, much to right, do with right, anything right. except the square inch of the lower lip, yeah. which is tra a tragic thing to think that you, all that ge genius. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Up here, no, excuse me, uh, speaking the truth for once. Um, where's my modest thing gone? Uh, oh, um, one, one square inch of lower lip, and uh, if, if that's not happening, nothing's happening. Yeah, you've had it. It's, I mean, same for trumpet players. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, it's about keeping that in shape, and the, the mind has to sort of occupy itself with with more cerebral matters like uh, intervals. Think, sometimes yeah, I think yeah, yeah, of yeah, interval yeah, patterns yeah. or, you know, what yeah. would it sound like if I did this, if I went from a low C sharp to a, uh, would that work? How would that feel? And actually, I think that does help, that kind of yeah, uh, yeah. mental th thinking about things and conceiving shapes and imagining how the fingers would get round those shapes. Yeah. That, that is an important part of uh, practice, although nobody would necessarily know you're doing it. Yeah. Which is also like circular breathing practice. 
which I can show you how to practice. <laughs> I'm doing it. <laughs> I can prove I'm doing it. It's not very attractive, is it? <laughs> Be practicing circular breathing and nobody knows you're doing it. Well, if you make that noise, they will. Well, that leads on to another sort of amusing story. When, when Paul Blay um, collaborated on a sort of autobiography, I think it's called Stopping Time or something. Mm -hmm. Very, Paul Blay, what a genius, wonderful musician, but. Mm -hmm. But incredible, incredibly, I don't know, way beyond hip, you know. <laughs> so, 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 I was so pleased to be able to work with Paul yeah. Blay. Um, but Paul Blay said that, yeah, people are talking a lot about Evan Parker. I've heard him do that circular breathing thing. I was thinking about it while I was practicing the other day. And I looked down at my, my fingers and I thought, wait a minute, I'm circular breathing. <laughs> And of course, if you're not circular breathing, you're probably dead, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that shut me up. Anyway. But um, I think, yeah, I mean, also, I think one thing I wanted to ask was, I mean, making, again, trying to bring it back to this relationship to, to visual arts and Maybe. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Otherwise, I don't get paid. But um, <laughs> and also, I'm thinking about the the that formation of free improvisation in a way. You know, I, I remember when I was about 14. For just, I'll I'll get autobiographical just for a second. When I was about 14, 15, I I, I, I mean, I got fed. I was brought up on kind of soul music, really, and I got fed up with it. I was looking for something else. And started listening to jazz, and it was kind of um, the people like John Sermon, Alan Skidmore, Mike Osborne, Tony Oxley—that generation, really. You know, it was about like yeah, fourteen, fifteen, and um, and the, the sort of it was it was like a kind of mainstream in a way that was that was starting to happen. It was like an amalgam of the the Coltrane Quartet and the Davis Quintet. It was that kind of a fusion of those uh, th those approaches on, on one level, and um, they usually maybe uh, had one. Maybe it was the record company that allowed them one free jazz track, probably on every album, um, and that's all. You know, um, but I think I think I then came across when I was about fifteen. It was the four compositions for Sextet by Tony Oxley, which you're playing on, actually, which um, I remember that being kind of quite mind-blowing at the time and, and, and trying to deal with it. So it was, it was, it's quite interesting. I was just thinking about this relationship, and there was an interplay, isn't there? There's a cross between people like, um, you know, Kenny Wheeler and Oxley playing in, in kind of very much kind of free context and more mainstream context. But I was thinking of... 
a lot of people you were associated earlier on, it wasn't the one free jazz track that would be on the album. It was, it was pretty determined. And I, and I was thinking, um, you know, how did that happen? A kind of where there was that commitment to what we might call an atonal jazz, you know, the, 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 the changes, the harmonic changes have been left behind. It was very textural. And I, I think what a risk in a way, now. I don't know if you feel the same looking back. You know, a risk in terms of, you know, potentially losing an audience as well, you know, maybe if I can be Philistine for We didn't for a have second. an audience to <laughs> lose. We had nothing to lose. Okay. Also, it was, it was an age of cheap rents, cheap food, different times. Yeah. Young musicians, how can they live in London now doing that kind of thing? Mm. Impossible. So, it was a golden window of opportunity for mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. for that kind of thing, that well that kind of attitude, mm -hmm. and uh, attitude is I don't think it wasn't like uh, we weren't looking for a fight with anyone. Uh, it was just mm -hmm. a bunch of music like-minded musicians that that knew what had been done and wanted to do something else, wanted to take it, take the next step. I mean, if it, if you listen to the, or if you're interested to uh, check out the kind of music I'm talking about, well, you'll know the Jimmy Jeffrey yeah, uh, yeah. trio with Paul Blay and Steve yeah. Swallow. Yeah. Well, that, that, okay, they were playing uh, heads a lot of the time. Yeah. But when they did play, the, you know, the there's usually album, one yeah. or two. Yeah, the, yeah. The, that's, that's it. It still yeah. sounds... Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that, it's you can't go beyond that in, in yeah. a way. It, it's like wonderful music, and it was already yeah. there. And there were moments on some of the ESP records. Yeah, I remember listening to um, Milford Graves and um, uh, Don Pullen. Yeah, yeah. Behind uh, um, what's the saxophone player called? No, no, Giuseppe Logan. Ah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, there were just moments of interaction between them. And it's like, yeah. And the same thing with the way uh, uh, Gary Peacock was playing with Sonny Murray behind yeah. Albert Isler. You didn't want to take the whole thing and make a pastiche of what had already been done. But there were elements there that you could say, hey, yeah. that's, uh, that's a whole field that can be taken and worked with. Mm. And uh, there, we actually didn't do that much of that kind of stuff because everybody knew you, we were all coming from a background of having heard that stuff and in mm. fact that's how I got invited by John Stevens to play at the little theatre club was because we got talking uh, he was there to see Jeff Rigdon's paint, paintings oh. at, at the Royal College of Art diploma show and I was there to see uh, the film that I'd done some futuristic music for for Gavin Owen Right. And uh, Alfreda Benj introduced uh, me to John, mm. and we started talking about Milford Graves and Sonny Murray, and like I think I was the only guy that he'd been able to do that with. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he said, "I'm I'm starting a club. Do you want to come down and play?" And that that was it. That was my my big break. Fantastic. Yeah, that was a spontaneous music. Everything, everything else came from that, really. So yeah. I, I usually try and find a way of thanking okay. Alfreda for, for having done that. Mm. 
And I'll do it again tonight because it's, you know, these are the moments if, if that hadn't happened, yeah. I don't know, I might be still with my nose pressed on the window. Thanks, everyone. I just want to say a huge, huge thank you uh, to David Ryan and also particularly to Evan Parker for a fantastic concert. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.